Well done. Well, this will be uh, this will be our last study in the Gospel of Mark for a little while. Um, next week, we're going to take a brief detour for about nine or ten weeks, and we're going to study the book of Titus together. Um, and then we're going to come back to the Gospel of Mark after that. So uh, that's the plan, and we're kind of getting to the centerpiece of the book, which uh, I'll discuss here in a few minutes as we get into it. But Mark chapter 8 is where we're going to be this morning. As you're opening up there, or you're already there, um, I don't know if you uh, made any New Year's resolutions. We talked about that uh, before the New Year, but one of the things, I don't know if it's a resolution or whatever, but something that I've been doing so far this year is taking a break from social media. Um, and uh, I have not really been on uh, Facebook or Twitter um, at all so far this year. Um, Those are the big two for me that I've been taking a break from. And I don't tell you that to make you think I'm somehow mature and godly uh, at all. Um, Just the opposite. Uh, I needed the time away from both of those to break the habit in my life um, and to focus on other things in my spare moments. And so that's what I've been trying to do this year uh, so far. And Um, My plan originally was to go through January, and I think it's probably going to continue for me. But the time away from just constant interaction on Facebook and on Twitter, some of you have no idea what those are probably, and uh, that's okay. Um, That's fine. But the time away from both of those um, and the amount of time I was putting into them and now taking a break from it has uh, given me a little bit of perspective um, from someone who was using them quite often in 2017 to pretty cold turkey, not using them at all in 2018. And it's sharpened my understanding a bit as I've thought about um, how they impact our lives. It's sharpened my understanding of what uh, those things do in our lives uh, a bit, I'd say. I'm nothing profound here that I'm going to share with you this morning, but really those uh, tools, and they can be very, very helpful and beneficial, Facebook, Twitter, social media, one of the major things that they do for us is give us a place to respond to life circumstances, things in the news, national events. They give us a place to respond to those things so that a lot of people can see our response. Um, and there's a certain amount of, um, there's, there's a, as you're using them, there's like an urge or a sense of need to respond to things publicly so that more and more people can see them and you get a wider audience to your responses. I mean, if you think about it, Facebook is literally a catalog of responses to the news or to life events that people put out there and then other people interact with the way you're responding to that. Um, and I've learned about myself as different things will happen this month, and I've had the, the guideline for my own life that I'm not going to put anything out there on social media. I've learned that I really have this urge to do that, and sometimes it's an urge of, well, I'm going to show everybody else what the right opinion on this is. And, you know, a lot of times it'll be out of pride or out of arrogance that I want to just put something out there and just stick it to people on social media, you know? Um, I don't know if you have that urge at all. Um, But, you know, that's a negative way to respond to things. But in our own lives, there really is a, we see something happen, there's a circumstance in our lives, and there's a very natural tendency to want to respond to things that happen. And we do respond automatically. And I think a lot of times, one of the things I've learned is we're better off responding to things by sitting down with someone face-to-face and having a conversation, talking an event through 
uh, circumstance in life, rather than just throwing words out into cyberspace that people are going to read that you've not met and seen in five years and uh, that you've not interacted with in a long time. And now you're having an argument over social media with them. And there's not a chance you would have this conversation face to face. Um, But I bring all of that up just simply to say that we all respond to things constantly. And that's one of the things I've noticed about myself. I, I, I respond to things consistently and constantly. Events, circumstances, things in the news, all of that. And social media can give us a place to do that in an angry way or a negative way. But as human beings, we're, we're intended to respond to things. Now, the point of talking about response is that in our study of Mark, we've gone through almost a full eight chapters, and we're reaching the centerpiece of the gospel of Mark. And this centerpiece of the gospel, I'll show you in a second here, this is going to force a response or an answer on the reader. It certainly did with the disciples who were right there, and they were being asked the question that Jesus asks them. But look at Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. This is literarily, this is the centerpiece, this is the climax of the book. Everything in the gospel of Mark leads up to this point, and everything after this question in the gospel of Mark goes from this question. Everything shifts when Jesus asks this question, and after this, he starts to teach more about his coming death and resurrection to his disciples. But everything up until this question has led the disciples to be asked this question and to get their response. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? That is the question. This whole gospel is leading you there. Who do people say that I am? Verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is the apex. And Jesus is posing this question to his disciples to force them to have a response to his ministry. They can't remain neutral. And as a reader of this gospel, you and I cannot remain neutral either. We have to respond. But to get to that question, to get to that point in the gospel, Mark has done something amazing as he's prepared you to ask that question. He doesn't ask it right off the bat. Who is Jesus? He builds you up to that point. And you've read, if you've read with us as we've studied this, you've read story after story about Jesus. And you've read about how he's the fulfillment of all these Old Testament expectations. And you've read about him walking on water and feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000. And you've read about all these miracles he's done and this teaching that he has given. And so the question is, as you've read that, you get to this point where how, do, how did people respond to Jesus during this time? And ultimately for us, the question is, how will we respond to this portrait that we've received of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to this final buildup that we're going to see this morning in Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. This is a final buildup to that scene in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asks that question. And in this passage, you're going to see two groups of people interacting with Jesus and responding to him. You're going to see the Pharisees, And you know what to expect of their response to Jesus. And then you're going to see the disciples. And this may catch you off guard with the disciples. And this puts the disciples in a place of evaluation of their own response to Jesus, their own reaction to him. 
And I'll tell you this morning, honestly, as we start into these stories, these stories should sober us as we read how they were responding to Jesus. Both of these groups at this point in the story are failing to see the truth about Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the disciples, they're not getting it. And that's concerning for us, I think, because they were in close proximity to Jesus, right? I mean, the disciples are walking with him and you and I have God's word accessible to us. And we're reading about him and we're studying on Sundays through the truth about Jesus. And it demands an appropriate and life-altering response to him and to his word. And so I think Mark intends to rev you up to this climax of the book by putting us as readers in a situation where we're asking very personal, very important questions of ourselves. And that's what we're going to see This morning, am I like the Pharisees or am I like the disciples at this point in the story? What's my reaction to Christ? So this morning, we're going to see two responses regarding Jesus. And both of these, unfortunately, are failures at this point. Now, obviously, you know the rest of the story. The disciples over time are going to get it right. But even in Mark 8, when they respond to Christ, they don't really fully understand his ministry yet. And we're going to learn along with them what his ministry is all about. But at this point, they're really not there yet. So two responses regarding Jesus that fail to embrace the good news of the kingdom. Two responses regarding Jesus. The first one of these is disbelief. Disbelief or unbelief. So if you remember Mark chapter 8, the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 to 10, we saw the feeding of the 4,000, all right? That story there. So after that, look down at verse 10. Jesus and the disciples get into the boat with his disciples and they cross from, remember, they're in Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory at the feeding of the 4,000. And so they cross the Sea of Galilee and they go back into Jewish territory at this point in the story. Okay. Now, once they land back in Jewish territory, it's like the Pharisees are there waiting for them. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. So we've come to expect opposition from the Pharisees, right? These are the bad guys in the story. And this is what we've come to expect as we've read the Gospel of Mark. And that's exactly what you find here. You find opposition. Look what it says. They come and began to argue with him. They approach Jesus for the purpose of arguing with him. And they come to argue with him and look what they're asking for. They want to see, seeking from him, a sign from heaven. They want a sign from Jesus. Now, when the Pharisees ask for a sign, they're not just asking for Jesus to do a miracle. They don't want him to just make rocks float in front of them or produce extra bread like he'd done in the past. That's not what they're asking for. It certainly includes a miracle, but that's not really what they're after here. When you read this, you have to keep in mind, Jesus is moving around Israel, which the the Pharisees feel responsible for the nation of Israel. They're the, the guardians of the law and the Torah. So they feel responsible to maintain purity within the nation as best they can, 
All right, them and the scribes. And so Jesus has been moving around Israel. He's been teaching and he's been doing miracles and he's been doing all of this claiming that he has authority from God. He is God's representative. That's what he's been claiming. And so the Pharisees here are asking for a sign. And what they're saying is we want you to authenticate that your ministry is really from God. And that would include a miracle, but it was more than just a miracle. They want proof that he is God's representative. When I go to the store and use my credit card, they often will ask for my ID to prove that I am the one that is able to use a credit card with the name Nathan T. Williams, Timothy, in case you're curious. Don't want your mind going off somewhere else, right? Okay, so (laughs) they want proof that I'm the one who has the authority to be able to use this credit card with this name on it. So I show them my ID. The Pharisees here are essentially asking Jesus for an ID. They want proof that he, they want authenticity to his ministry, that it's legit. Now, it's not terrible to want to know if someone's ministry is legitimately from God. It's not a bad thing to ask. In fact, in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy, the Jewish people were given guidelines from the Lord how they could determine if a prophet's ministry was authentic, if it was from the Lord. And so the Pharisees aren't way off base in asking this, but the problem is the way in which they come to ask him. Look at the end of verse 11. Seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. That's the issue with the way that they ask. When you test drive a car, you test drive a car to evaluate it and to see if it's something that you want to purchase. You, you see if there are any problems with it and you see if you truly love this car and you want to spend the money on it. Well, the Pharisees here were not testing to purchase. They were not testing to see if they loved it. They were only coming and testing to poke holes in the ministry of Jesus and to find problems with what he was doing. They wanted to expose Jesus as inadequate and as a fraud and as a fake. And look how Jesus responds and how he, what he thinks of their request. Verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Why does Jesus refuse? I mean, wouldn't this be simple enough, right? The Pharisees are asking for authentication of his ministry. They're asking for a little photo ID. He's truly from God. Why wouldn't Jesus just give this to them and then solve this whole struggle between he and the Pharisees? Well, this gets to the very heart of the issue with the Pharisees, which is unbelief or disbelief. They came in order to argue and to test. They did not come in order to learn. They did not come in order to decide that they were going to purchase the car, to find out how much they loved it. They came to find problems not to rejoice in Messiah's arrival. And we call this disbelief because they were completely lacking in humility when they came. Their response to Jesus is one of arrogance and pride. And what they've essentially done is they have put themselves in the seat of judgment. They have said, we will evaluate you and we will decide whether you are truly an authority from God or not. We will judge you. How pompous is that to put themselves in that seat of authority? 
And the issue with this sort of disbelief is not a lack of knowledge necessarily in this case. It's a moral issue. They have already decided what they want. And what they want is not for Jesus to be the Messiah. And they're interpreting all the data through that moral revulsion to Jesus. Mark has described this as a hardened heart. It doesn't matter what comes at that heart. It's going to bounce off of it. And a hardened heart can fortify itself against the most profound and obvious evidence, can't it? It doesn't matter how clear it is. I'm not going to accept this. And that sort of unbelief or disbelief is found, it's described in Romans chapter 1. You should be familiar passages, but look at what it says here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is why God's angry against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. It's their unrighteousness. It's their moral desires. It's their hunger for doing what is evil that causes them to push down the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. They can look at creation. Paul goes on to talk about it and see, look, there has to be a designer. There has to be a God who has authority here. But what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it. And they have suppressed that. They have pushed that down. They have turned against that. And that's what's happening with the Pharisees here. It's a commitment on the part of the unbeliever to live independently of God. To say, I do not want you to be in authority over me. I will choose to push knowledge down, to push the clarity of God's design and rulership over the world down. And I will live as the authority in my own life. They want to act independently of Christ's claims to be Lord. And the claims of his ministry for him to be Lord. And that's what causes Jesus to sigh here. It's that level of arrogance. They have hardened hearts. They're not going to get it. And the creator of the universe does not sit under the judgment of men. It does not work that way. He's not going to play their games. The clay pot will not evaluate the potter and his work. And at root, unbelief rejects the authority of God and tries to live independently of God. That's, that's what Adam and Eve did, right? In the garden. They knew what God had said, and they rejected their status as creatures, and they refused to accept God's authority and to live based on his authority, and they wanted to be like God. That was the temptation. They wanted to be the ones sitting in judgment over him and over the world he had made. And that's what happens to you and I when we hear what God's word says, and we refuse to obey it, and we sit in judgment on the scriptures. And Jesus flat out rejects that mindset. Look at verse 13. He will have nothing to do with that or that game. Verse 13, and he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, this is obviously talking about physical movement. Jesus physically gets in the boat, leaves the Pharisees, and goes to the other side. But you would have to think there's some double entendre going on here with this, right? He leaves them physically and spiritually. He's nothing to do with them and their arrogance. And he's rejecting them because of their unbelief here. Now, when you start to think about this, 
Most of us in this room aren't in the state of unbelief that the Pharisees are in here. We've not rejected the Lord like this. But there is a lesson here, I think, for believers from what we see of the Pharisees and their reaction to Christ. Faith is a growth process. And the old man that is inside of us tries to cling tightly to our souls and tries to influence us and tries to get us to play into this sort of arrogance over God's word. And this should be a warning light to us that there are times where we read the scriptures and we put ourselves in the authority over God's word. And the answer to that is to come to God's word in humble obedience. There's a great passage for this in the book of James. And I want to read this to you and show you how this whole thing is talking about God's word, okay? This is James chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, all right? It starts by talking about how we are saved through the work of God's word. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then skip down to that last sentence there, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. So the two bookends of this text are dealing with God's word here. But follow the flow of logic here in this. All right. Go back up to verse 18 of his own will. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That is not talking about how you respond to other people. Those are fine principles for how your kids deal with one another or how you deal with one another. This is talking about our response to God's word. We're born by God's word. We're responsible to do God's word. And so everything in the middle there is talking about our response to God's word. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger at the scriptures. And then continue. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. I love how he says, receive with meekness, be swift to hear, slow to speak and receive God's word with humility and with meekness. Come and place yourself under the scriptures and then walk out and be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you're only a hearer, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself into thinking that your religion, your faith is true. If you never practice What comes to you in God's word? But as you look at this response of the Pharisees, this is not the only faulty response to Jesus. Unbelief is certainly a dramatic response. And that brings us to our second one, darkness. Now, when I say darkness here, I'm not talking about complete and total rejection of the Lord. That's not where the disciples were at. What we're talking about is an inability to see. They're sort of fumbling around. In the darkness. Verse 13, Jesus and the disciples look back there. They got into the boat and they went to the other side. So his disciples are with him. And then look what happens. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them. So Jesus takes this opportunity to do a little bit of teaching, a little parable with the disciples. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
Now, obviously, this is a warning that Jesus gives the disciples here. I mean, he says, watch out, beware. Okay, so we're dealing with a warning to the disciples. But what does he mean to be aware, to be warned about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod? What, what is he, what's he doing there? Well, obviously, this whole section has been talking about bread. So he's using another appropriate illustration here that goes right along with bread. And he talks about leaven. What is leaven? Well, it's yeast. Some of you know that much better than I do. Leaven is something that's very small. It starts very small. You need a a tiny little bit of leaven. You put it in the dough, and it has a massive impact on everything that it touches. In our house, Bethany makes uh, dough from scratch-ish once a week. And um, she, she makes dough... And it's for pizza, and it's wonderful. It's very, very good. We love it. Homemade pizza once a week. And she puts yeast into the flour and water and whatever else goes in there, and she puts it in there. And it's so cool to see it grow and for the the dough to get larger and larger and to be able to be turned into a pizza crust. And it tastes fantastic. And instead of being flat, it's soft and it's fluffy. And leaven is good for baking. I'm so glad that she uses it in the pizza dough. But in scripture, leaven is often used in a negative way. And it's the image that it's something that makes a, a very subtle and a small start of impact. And then it grows and grows and it becomes dramatic in the way it influences something else. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about this impact that the Pharisees and the Herod are going to have negatively. But what is the leaven that he's warning the disciples about? Well, as you're reading this and you read the Pharisees and Herod, okay, you should be thinking, could there be any two people who have anything more different than these two? I mean, they are dramatically different. Herod was a Gentile, womanizing, hard-partying ruler, and the Pharisees were not that (laughs) at all. They were the most strict, religiously observant people that you could imagine. And so Jesus is bringing them together and saying, these two have something in common that I want you guys to be aware of and reject here. What was the thing that they had in common? Mark 3, 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, who are Herod's people, against Jesus, him, how to destroy him. What's the thing that the Pharisees and the Herodians and Herod have in common? They both have rejected the ministry of Jesus in their arrogance. One author described it this way. And I love this. This is what the leaven is. The evil impulse that has hardened the heart of the Pharisees in Herod and refuses to recognize and accept the truth. And unbelief reflected in one's response to Jesus. That's what the leaven is. So Jesus here uses this parable, this illustration that he gives of leaven. And he warns the disciples not to let their hearts follow the path of hardness that the Pharisees And Herod had cleared for them. How do the disciples respond? This is humorous, right? Look at verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. They missed the point. 
And he completely missed the point. It's like they're sitting there in darkness. They don't get it at all. This is a parable that Jesus has just given them, and they are not operating on the terms of the parable. They are in left field somewhere, wandering around. They are so focused on physical bread that they can't see the reality of the bread of life who is right there with them. They're not getting it. And they're not even aware of their own condition. They don't see it at all. They are in darkness of mind. And I love how the boat erupts into discussion when Jesus gives this parable. You can just picture all these different, I mean, it's a small boat, but you can picture all these different little groups of disciples arguing with one another about the fact that they don't have enough bread to feed them all. And that's why Jesus warns them about the leaven, because they're so distracted and so missing the point that they're starting to go down this path toward hardness of heart. This darkness, this inability to understand who Jesus is, can turn into something much more sinister, like the Pharisees. This is where it starts. It's an inability to grasp who Christ is, and then slowly the heart gets hardened, and the leaven starts to take root, and it becomes something much worse and much bigger, and the effects are far-reaching. This is the starting line. So how does Jesus respond to this? He knows What's happening in their hearts? He knows they're at the starting line and they're going to go down this path. And so he responds firmly but graciously to try to keep them from going down this path, to have them evaluate their own response to him, to try to show them the darkness that they're walking in right now. Look at verse 17. And Jesus, aware of this, right? He knows. He knows what's happening in their hearts. He's aware of this, said to them, and then you get this string of questions. That he throws out to them. I'll read all of them and then we'll go back and work through them. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And he gives them all these questions here. And he does this very graciously to try to help them to see the pretty dire situation they're in. They have watched him do his ministry and they're not getting it yet and they need to get it. So he's trying to help them. Now, it's a barrage of questions. So let's try to work through these. I want to highlight a couple things for you. First of all, you can see all the way down in verse 21. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? One of the questions, the second question he asked, do you not yet perceive or understand? It's not just that they don't believe here. They can't believe because they aren't grasping it intellectually. They're not seeing the issue here. True faith includes right knowledge. You don't have to know everything perfectly, but you have to know something truly about Jesus. You have to know who he is. You have to grasp it. We'll come back to that in a few minutes when we get to verse 21. But I wanted to highlight that because it's important. Second thing, he asked them if their hearts are hardened. You can see it at the end of verse 17 there. As you think about that question, are your hearts hardened? That has been the assessment of the Pharisees throughout the book of Mark, hasn't it? They have hardened hearts. And here, Jesus asks his own disciples if their hearts are hardened. 
At this point in the story, the disciples are distracted and confused enough where they are trending in that direction. And Jesus is trying to pull them back. I mean, there's another example of this. After Jesus fed the 5,000, remember this? And he got into the boat with them. And after he walked on water, the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This process is beginning in the disciples, which is a scary thing. They're not seeing who Jesus is and their hearts are being becoming hardened. Look at what Jesus asked them in verse 18. This is fascinating. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Now, we've seen that language before, haven't we? We saw it back when Jesus talked about the parables, that people would have eyes, but they wouldn't be able to see. They would have ears, but they wouldn't be able to hear. And that language goes all the way back to Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament. And it's also used a number of other places in the Old Testament. I want to show you one of those because I think it's, it's pretty interesting how Jesus connects this phrase to the situation the disciples are in here. All right. So. It's in Ezekiel chapters 11 and 12, and I'll put it on the screen so that you don't have to try to find Ezekiel, all right? So what's happening in the book of Ezekiel, just a little bit of background here is, God is going to send Israel into exile, all right? And he's going to send Ezekiel as a prophet into exile with them to prophesy to them, to bring a word from the Lord to them, all right? So Ezekiel describes what's going to happen here. The Spirit lifted me up. And brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Okay? Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. All right. So, Israel has been exiled for their sin. Okay? They've been incredibly sinful, worshiping idols. And they've been so bad. That God literally had to bring in a foreign nation and carry them out of his promised land that he'd given them into a foreign nation. Many were killed. Obviously, incredible suffering, incredible pain. They get carried away from their homes in slavery to a foreign nation because of their sin. You would think, having experienced that, that you would repent and turn to the Lord and understand just how bad your sin is. You would think... That would be the case. Right on the heels of this, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the next verses, look what God says. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. Who have eyes to see, but see not? Who have ears to hear, but hear not? For they are a rebellious house. The nation of Israel was in exile for their sin, and they didn't even get it. And God says this diagnosis of them was they have eyes to see, They're not perceiving this. They're not getting what's happening. They have not learned and their hearts haven't been changed. And I think Jesus uses this phrase in Mark chapter eight of the disciples to say, you guys better be careful. This is what's happening in your own life. You're not seeing what's really going on here. You're not perceiving who I truly am. They had seen incredible things, hadn't they? They'd listen to the Son of God teach, and yet they're still missing the point. And so Jesus presses some more specific questions. Look at verse 19. When I broke the first, the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And like a, 
like an elementary school student responding, they give the answer, right? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. I mean, they were there. They saw all of these things happen. But they're missing the point that these were not about physical provision for people. What were they about? The heart of these miracles had been teaching that Jesus is the one who provides all sufficiency spiritually for Jews and for Gentiles. He provides in abundance for those who come to him by faith. And yet, having seen both of those things happen, the disciples are in the boat arguing about the fact that they don't have enough bread to eat. They're missing the point of Christ's ministry. And so Jesus concludes with a simple question in verse 21. And I think this question is meant to address the disciples and it's meant to address those of us who are reading as well. Verse 21, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? He's graciously poking at them going, you guys got to see this. He's not mad, but he wants them desperately to see. Now, we talked about this earlier, but I want you to notice what Jesus says and doesn't say. He does not say, do you not yet believe, does he? He says, do you not yet understand? He wants them to believe, but true faith will not flourish without light. It has to perceive, it has to see before it can be true faith. And I think one of the implications of this for us is that you cannot divorce a proper understanding of Jesus from true faith in Jesus. They go together. Faith is not a blind leap in the darkness. Faith is not confidence despite the evidence. Despite the evidence. That's not what faith is. Faith is rooted in the truth about Jesus. It is based on the truth of Jesus Christ. Faith is a humble understanding I don't get everything, but I understand the reality of who Jesus is and his ministry. And it's a humble understanding that submits to the truth of God's person or Christ's person and work. Faith is grounded in an intellectual grasp of Jesus and his ministry. It involves knowing. One author said this, I love this. Faith is conviction of the truth of God. It's conviction of the truth of God. It rests on testimony. That is why our great spiritual forefathers were preeminently men of one book, because it has to involve truth. They were not content till they could quote the Bible extensively and accurately, sing its Psalms, sorry about the letters, expound its theology, apply its laws to daily life, and solace themselves with it on their deathbeds. I mean, this truth is significant for all of life. And Your faith has to be grounded in this truth. This is the truth that will gird you up in the midst of sickness and death and difficulty. And it's based in a proper understanding. This is why we study God's word together on Sundays. This is why I don't just give you a list of rules and to do's. Here's five ways to overcome anxiety. Here's four ways to have a better marriage. Those things are fine and we may do those at some point, but we want to understand the truth of who Jesus is. I don't want to fill your Sunday mornings with cliche platitudes because that will not support you when you come to your deathbed. Only the truth of God's word will support you in that moment. 
You have to think. We have to think. We have to understand. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to get this. It's a humble understanding of God's word and a response of obedience to his word. Now, that sounds like it's all on you. But the beauty of this is that you do not come to understand this by your own effort. It's not your intellectual ability that gets you there. It's purely the grace of God that opens blind eyes to see. And this is where the gospel of Mark is structured in an absolutely amazing way. I want you to notice after this, Jesus says, do you not perceive? Do you not understand? Are you guys not able to see this? And guess what little miracle story comes next and ends this chapter. Look at this in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Now, here's the crazy thing about this story. It's a blind man, and you know what's going to happen, but this is a story of this blind man where the healing takes place in stages. Look at it with me. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. What does that mean? I have no idea. (laughs) But things were not functioning properly. He wasn't seeing clearly as he was supposed to yet. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything Clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. This story takes this healing. This blind man being healed takes place in stages. His sight's not fully there after Jesus first touches him. But eventually it comes there. And that's not because of anything lacking in Jesus, is it? It's not like Jesus couldn't have healed him initially the first time. But I think what's happening here is this story is a paradigm. You're meant to read the disciples not getting it, not getting it, not getting it. They're struggling. They're not perceiving. They're not understanding. And then this story comes next for you to see that Jesus will slowly unveil the truth about who he is to the disciples. And they will get it. But they'll only get it because of his grace and his work in revealing the truth to them. It's not going to happen all at once. You'll even see... In the next story, when we get to Peter's response to Jesus, he says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, okay, you're starting to get it now. That means I have to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what Messiah does. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. You're not getting it. But this story is the paradigm for what's going to happen with the disciples. And they are going to get it. And that's the same reality for each one of us who have come to Christ. Sight comes, spiritual sight comes through the power and grace of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's that power that is at work in us. And it's that power that we need to begin responding rightly to Christ and to stay responding rightly to him as we walk by faith. So if you've not experienced that this morning, cry out to him for mercy And for repentance to come to your soul. And then seek to know and understand. Because the truth explained in the Gospels is the pathway for God's Spirit to illuminate your dark heart. And to bring faith into your 
into your life. Faith that is based on the word of God. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful for your word once again. We're thankful for the clarity that it gives. So often we have been in the same situation as the disciples. We see, but we don't see. We hear, but we don't hear. And we need you, just like the blind man in verses 22 to 26, we need you to open our eyes. We can't do it on our own. It requires your work in us. And so that's our prayer, Lord. That's our prayer, even as believers, that you would continue to do that work in our hearts, that you would continue to open our eyes to the truths of your word and that these truths would fortify us and they would make us sing of your grace that they would strengthen and soften us, Lord. They would give us boldness and meekness. That's our desire, Father. We love you. We thank you for your grace. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.